Hi everyone, and welcome to the ADSR Inspirations Podcast. My name is James Mallion. I'm your host as I introduce you to inspirational and artful souls from all over the world. I'm deeply interested in music, film, the arts, achieving goals, overcoming struggles, and big ideas. So join me as we uncover some life lessons and knowledge. We're based out of Tokyo, Japan, and we'll be speaking with people from all over the world, ranging from artists, musicians, creatives, leaders, big thinkers, and those who strive to do and be great. Thanks for listening along. Now let's get inspired. Okay, welcome once again to ADSR Inspirations. And we're going back to Canada, close to my hometown for this one. Uh, Our guest today, Go Iromoto, is a director and cinematographer based in Toronto, Canada. And as a child to immigrant parents who founded a Japanese-Canadian newspaper company, Go was able to travel across Canada and grow his sense of curiosity from a young age. After receiving his BA in human geography at the University of British Columbia, his interest in people, places, and environments further deepened his passion for documentary filmmaking. His love for the craft of cinematography has also allowed his work to achieve a strong sense of visual beauty, which has helped lead to numerous awards including those from the Canadian Society of Cinematographers, Epica Awards, and BMO Staff Picks. His previous short films include 2017's The Canoe and 2019's The Wonder, which were official selections at the Banff Mountain, Whistler, and Docklands Documentary Film Festivals. Please welcome to our show, Go Iromoto. Hey, thanks for the uh, lovely (laughs) intro. (laughs) Appreciate it. Yeah, cool, man. Thanks for thanks for coming on and uh, talking to us here. So I'm excited to talk to you, like in particular, because uh, because of my own interests as well in film, cinematography, and documentary. Um, for myself, growing up, particularly in high school, like with the ease of access to so many films through DVDs and the internet, uh, that's like really when I started to vi- develop a passion and explore like what was possible with film. So I'm curious, like, when did it start for you? When did this interest in film and image start for you growing up? Ooh, um, that's, that's a great question. And uh, one that might take a little while for me to go, but here I go, if, if you could bear with me. Um, you know, my parents were, uh, they started a, a local community newspaper here in Toronto, Canada, when they um, when they moved here, and this was just before they they had me. And what that meant was, you know, aside from the stereotype of being uh, a Japanese father and family of having a camera with them at every uh, uh, you know at every time we went and left the house. Um, <laughs> Uh, being journalists, they always had a camera at every restaurant we went to, you know, every tourist attraction we went to, every weekend outing, uh, there would be a camera. And so I remember being an only child uh, at, at the time. Um, a lot of those times I was being in the backseat of the car uh, with with a camera was kind of my toy. It was either a Game Boy or I had, you know, one of their cameras. And, um, you know, I didn't think that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I don't, I don't think I had that concept in my head. If anything, it was sort of, I understood journalism more so, uh, than filmmaking. And, 
you know, but over the years, it just became something that was very second nature to me. And then I remember I was very lucky in my junior public school in my, my uh, high school years where I had teachers that allowed me to do video projects instead of instead of having to do essays and writing writing papers and again my parents weren't very strong with English so you know I, w- I was always at a dis- disadvantage with English assignments and writing assignments so I kind of as a crutch I would use video and um, you know that got me all the grades I needed to get myself to university and so on and so forth and so again at this point I still didn't think oh I, I think I'm gonna I want to be a filmmaker or you know, I could, I could even do this as a career. Um, but I did start to grow a love for film, TVs, TV series, shows, and documentaries in particular. And I think that's where my parents' journalism element and, you know, film started to kind of come together. Um, but uh, yeah, what, it really wasn't until university when I started taking some film classes, even though I majored in human geography. Um, and then I started to get my first freelance gigs to you know to film and to edit stuff and this is around when i was 19 I, I got my first sort of jobs um actually taking video and turning it into something getting paid for it and so it was around the early 20s where everything just sort of coalesced and it was sort of this interest in background in my you know gear and cameras the techie part uh my parents upbringing of journalism and kind of the storytelling that they had uh, and then, and then, sort of this work environment and my love of travel and everything just all kind of came together. And then, you know, it didn't it didn't happen right away, but that sort of was the spawning point of 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 uh, where it all began. You you mentioned like your interest in gear and I guess technology. Did, did you uh, like growing up? Then were you always kind of taking you know little short movies, or were you always messing around with? different gear or um, things like that then? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, it, gear's been like, I've had an interesting relationship with gear as, as you know, I guess the so-called artists um, because, you know, now I'm actually sort of, I'm going backwards and I'm kind of shedding all that and reverting back to, you know, pen and paper or, or a laptop with like a, just a basic text edit file to, to do writing of stories, which is sort of what I've, is where I'm at today in 2021. But if you go back in my timeline, it was sort of like, you know, very, very techie and chipboards and soldering things and that kind of thing. And and from a young age, I always had this intuition that, you know, maybe I think about seeing like a five-year-old kid now with an iPad, Mm -hmm. uh, which fascinates me. And, And although we didn't have iPads when I was a kid, you know, um, connecting cables, uh, computer stuff, uh, whatever existed, I was always quite handy with. And that was also another crutch of mine too. When I first got into this business is, you know, while I may not have had the foundations of traditional cinema and storytelling, um, I had a really good understanding of gear and it was things like, you know, my parents, my dad coming from like a smaller rice farming village, he to this day has no idea about technology. So from a young age, like I was the guy that usually was, you know, tech support for everything. And, um, yeah, I just sort of always seem to have an intuition about it. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's just been a, it's just been a, a very interesting relationship with, with gear and technology because 
as a, as, as somebody in film, you could easily go two routes and just sort of become a complete gearhead, uh, which I was, and I have, and I probably still am, but it does, it can kind of take up a lot of your mental space and energy is, uh, in, in creating things. And I think it's important to, you know, have a better balance. So you're not just sort of only a gear guy. And I think a lot of people in film could probably relate to that kind of binary as well. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, at least on your site and some of your credits, it has you listed as a cinematographer, um, a director, you know, someone who specializes in documentary. Where are you kind of most comfortable or are you always kind of exploring, like you mentioned, you're kind of going backwards now. Are, are you always kind of exploring new facets of filmmaking or um, production? Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, no, great, great. Uh, thanks for, for recognizing that. Um, you know, when I started, I was sort of uh, what people might call like a one-man show and, or one-person show. And so, you know, I would have a camera, I would then do the editing, I would direct it, I would do the sound and everything. Um, and as I kind of progress, you know, a, a lot of people might go to film school and understand the division of labor right off the bat and understand the team dynamic right off the bat. Whereas, and I kind of really did start from being this one person show and then kind of slowly developing to the point where, you know, last week, I think we had um, like 80 to a hundred people on set at one point. And, and I really was just the director at that point. And to your point, you know, there does come a point where, there's just too much to do that it would be a disservice to the project and the story and the job to, to do it all. Um, but there are other situations where being both roles um, has benefited me. I find uh, where I feel most comfortable is a really interesting question. I would have said in the past, it was in the documentary setting where it's me alone with a camera and maybe only a few other crew members um, because I really love the intimacy and I love the, you know, uh, the fluid and the nimbleness and the sort of the organic nature of that style of, of, of working and creating. But I have to say, you know, uh, what's been great about my career is early on, there came a point where if you look at the work I did every year, it would have, it was almost half and half, mm -hmm. you know, or I would always, I would always do a couple jobs or had a larger crew and then a couple jobs or projects that was just, you know, two or three people sometimes, or even myself. And I think having that balance throughout my entire career, most of my career was really important. Um, and to this day, like I'd say that's, that's a good, you know, it's still a good sort of um, range of what I do. It, I'm starting to direct a lot more. And there did come a point about four years ago where I was really conflicted on, if I had to choose a path, which should I do, or if I should do one more for work versus, you know, my personal art and creating and, and films. Um, and I had, a, I had an experience where I was a cinematographer for a director that was, you know, you don't get them as much now, but he was quite intense and, um, what's the right word to say, you know, uh, inappropriate i'd say maybe right, is the best yeah. way to put it and 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 uh you know maybe maybe even something you might experience in like certain older companies in japan or, or in, you know but anyway it, it really made me realize that you know i, I did want to be a director and if i had to choose i'd rather be a director and so 
that's where I'm at now. A lot of my commercial projects now, I actually almost prefer to collaborate with the cinematographer and let that go. Um, but it will be an ongoing thing that I have a relationship with both. And it will be ongoing where I kind of pick and choose depending on, on the project. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. And I guess, um, like you mentioned, working you know with 80 and 100 people, um, you're going to have to, at that point, trust people to kind of do their own thing a little bit. And you're just kind of overseeing um, certain, I guess, um, you know, divisions of labor and make sure the whole thing's running smoothly. Um, yeah. Go well, ahead, yeah. Serge, like, on that point, I mean, I guess that's the other more uh, truthful answer to that is, you know, I also, even on bigger crew jobs in the past, I did used to uh, be my own cinematographer. And um, th- there's a number, there's no one single reason I could say, I mean, budget was sometimes a reality of it, that it was actually made more sense. But I think trust issues and mm-hmm. control issues sort of is the underlying kind of uh, reality and theme of, and, and uh, if I were to be honest about it, <laughs> um, you know, I think, uh I even said to the cinematographer I worked last week, you know, in the past, it was a combination of things. I felt almost too guilty to, uh, to, to, to work the way that I like to do, which is, I am a little bit quite intense. I'm pretty detailed. You know, I have high standards. I, you know, I, I use, you know, WhatsApp now as like a creative tool almost with any of my collaborators. And at the moment I have an idea, like I shoot a voice memo and it's fantastic because I don't let things slide through and it's just things. And then you, if you have a quick back and forth, it's great, but it, it takes up a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. Um, when I'm my own cinematographer, I don't have to feel guilty. I can wake up at five in the morning, stay up till two in the morning, you know, um, I don't have to worry about those things about being humane. Right. Uh, but when you work with other people, you, you, you know, I like to be considerate. And uh, so, so that was one thing that was holding me off from it. But now finding collaborators who on their own accord are wanting to or willing to and, and are partnering in that way has been really great to know that other people are actually willing to do that on a project of mine is really cool. And then the trust factor too. For sure, there were times where, you know, in the past, I felt like, uh, oh, I, I wish I could just grab the camera away and do it this way. And it's it's a bit of a control struggle trust thing. And yeah. maybe, maybe again, hopefully this is relatable to some degree to others, um, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to let go, to be able to trust and stuff, which is, which is important, you know. And, uh, and I do think that as a result, the work that I'm doing has continually improved uh, or I feel better about at least as a creative process, if anything. Um, so that's been pretty cool. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So let's, uh, let's go back a little bit before, you know, before you're working with teams of, you know, 80 and a hundred, uh, you, you mentioned you initially started doing some freelance stuff and, um, then what was there a point, I guess was, that was when you were in university in BC so was there a point really when I guess the freelance work just started building up and you kind of realized, okay, maybe I'll be able to make a living from filmmaking or was it just kind of a gradual thing or 
Um, were you like hired by a company? Like, I guess my question is, uh, what kind of, at what point did you realize, okay, this is what I'm going to do as a career? Yeah. Um, well, I had a, again, a, a bit of an interesting timeline. So when I was about, you know, 1920, I got my first freelance gig and that was, uh, it was this organization out in Vancouver, um, that was, uh, specialized in underwater breath hold diving. So it's called free diving and something that I do personally. And I used to compete and I just started making videos for them and, and, you know, right off the bat, they were, I got to go to, a, a, a Cayman Islands with them and I got to kind of travel around and do a lot of cool projects. Um, but I was still in school. And then I think by the time I was in third year university, I got an internship at a post-production company in Toronto that was, that was, uh, that specialized in commercial advertising. And that's, that sort of was how I got introduced to that myself, which is how, you know, aside from the personal doc work that I do, um, I do currently do a lot of commercial work. That's sort of how I make a living. And that's also how I get a lot of creative satisfaction too. Now I, I tend to work on like the Sapporo project is a great example. Um, you know, it's projects that incorporate doc kind of style and commercial style in there. But anyway, so I got this internship and it turned into a, an assistant editor and then a junior editor position. And it was very Japanese style, like sleeping at the office all the time, working nonstop, you know, <laughs> not having much of a personal life for, for a year and a half, but I loved it. And it was sort of almost like school for me. And, um, I actually ended up, they convinced me to drop out of the university. And so I did for a period, uh, year and a half went by and, uh, they wanted me to keep moving up in the company. And I always wanted to backpack and travel. Like my, my father had done. So I heard, I grew up listening to his childhood or his young youthful stories of sure, backpacking yeah. and I really wanted to do it. So the company let me go for a year. And in that year I had, you know, the epiphany that I didn't want to be locked in a room editing all the time. So I decided I'm going to go back to school, uh, human geography, you know, was a choice because I, I thought about going to photography school, not not film at the time, but um, I thought I might want to know a bit more about what I'm like the, the stories and the subjects I want to uh, to portray, and so I decided to go and back to UBC. Um, so that took another two years, and I worked at the school paper at the time, and then from there, luckily, just one freelance gig. From another, uh, the National Film Board. I don't know if you've heard of it in Canada, but um, mm -hmm. I got a free a freelance gig with them right out of school. And then uh, the commercial industry found me again in two thousand and eight nine because the whole idea of doing doc style commercial work was starting to pick up again. And so I think I was about twenty seven, twenty eight when I do remember going. All right, I'm either gonna like do this freelance gig thing and try it out for real and not be something I do in between my schoolwork, um, you know, or at the time I actually wanted to be a school teacher. So those are my two paths. Mm. And I took, I took the gamble like, you know, many other people do. And now I, I talk to a lot of younger people who are wanting to get into the business and, and have similar conversations. And yeah, I took the gamble and, and, you know, I had a couple consistent things, which were like at the time burning DVDs for like, you know, it was like a course that they filmed. This one organization would film a course that they do and they film it every three months or so. And then I had to burn DVDs for the students. And 
edited and and uh you know it's just little things like that to to carry me through but yeah i'd say since 2007 8 when i made that choice up to now it's actually it's been kind of a i've been very lucky um and it's been a slow rise and it's just been the combination of you know obviously the hard work which everyone does but and, and the focus and the intensity of it and and um really working hard at just gaining people's trust i think has been a key factor aside from skill level and working hard and all this kind of stuff um i think i think in a yeah i think that's what sort of helped me at least financially um keep this up as a as a career right right you mentioned um you mentioned gaining people's trust and i'm i'm curious whether you think um a lot of getting steady work has to do with connections or your skill level or probably a combination of both um you know i've talked to people in the past who've kind of said you know oh it's all about the people you know, you know, um, it doesn't matter, you know, the next guy can do it just as good or better, but it's all the connections. What's, what's your kind of take on that? I think the people, you know, is definitely a gateway and an entryway, but, uh, I could say at least here in the world that I've, you know, the realm that I'm in, which is in the Canadian market, but, even when I do, you know, work for international clients and, and work anywhere, even when we, you know, go to Japan and I meet new, new uh, collaborators and artists and whatnot, um, the thing that I look for, and it's not something that I'm necessarily have a checklist of, but it's a little bit more of a intuitive thing. And, and I do believe that other people that hire me or work with me feel the same way is a way to find that trust. Uh, and, and, and I think I'll use the word reliability, you know, I think, I think the connection is, is key. Like, um, you know, I had a personal connection that got me this internship at this editing company. And, uh, at that point, that was the gateway. I could have been out of there in a month, mm. but they wanted to keep me. And I think the connection will, is important. Uh, it'll get you only so far. And I think at the end of the day, you know, are you reliable? Are you are you trustworthy and are you good to get along with, you know, are you somebody you can connect with? Um, I think those are those, yeah, I've never really articulated it this way, but I think those would be the two key elements that, you know, I try my best to teach younger folks. And now over here, I don't know what it's like in Japan, but you know, over the last year, there's just been a huge eye opening awareness of, um, you know, members of the BIPOC community clearly not having, much of uh, an advantage or a presence in our industry and you know i think the reasons why and the conversations why have come up a lot and there's been a lot of mentorship opportunities and one thing that i've been you know i was really hyper aware of having been one of the only asian uh, or non-white uh, people of this neighborhood and community i grew up in was you know how i could fit in how i can connect um I'm not saying that, you know, this is a very complex issue. It's not to say that everyone needs to, to, to change into a certain, you know, culture. But um, I did, I do realize now that my ability to connect as a human, and that could be done in any way, shape or form, and my ability to be very conscious of, you know, reliability and trust. Um, 
and that and that's you know that's not just speaking it's it's sort of doing doing too and it's putting in the work that's needed to to gain that as well um so so for instance like a lot of the ways we get work now in the commercial world is directors are often uh given a, a brief or a project and we're actually often triple triple bidded uh, with the ad agency. And that means that there's, you know, basically it's sort of a bit of a competition between three directors and only one of them, whoever has the best pitch gets the job. And that's, you know, my first time I joined the production company I'm with, I lost like 10 jobs in a row. It's an, it's an art and a craft. Yeah. It's an art and a craft in itself to be able to convince, you know, a company that's going to have hundreds of thousands, if not sometimes more, to you know are you the person that we're going to rely on this money on to do an ad campaign for us and you know i could be the the ad agency's you know son nephew niece whatever it is uh, best friend and get that foot in the door but there will be so many moments where you have to to prove that you are reliable and trustworthy and that for me would be putting hours and hours into my pitch so that when they see it, it just looks, you know, it, it has that in there. And then, you know, the way that I come off um, and my relatability, my, my ability to connect with the people I'm talking to as a human, um, I think are the two things that I would, you know, pinpoint uh, for, for anyone else, else out there or just, just what I'm recognizing that I do myself. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's some great advice. So like you say, I I suppose you probably build up a reputation as well, right? You know, you, you do this one project and then, oh, okay, well, he handled this really well. Um, You know, let's work with him again. Or, you know, I don't know exactly the situation, how many production companies are currently um, operating around the Toronto area. But I, I'm assuming, you know, they know each other or they know kind of the directors out there um, who are doing the work. You know, it's funny. It's true. I mean, in one sense, we have a pretty small market here. Um, but I do feel like uh, and it, it does help sometimes they, they say, oh, I talked to so and so and you know whatnot. But I do often feel like every time I, um, I'm doing a pitch lately, it's it's brand new people with fresh, okay. yeah. completely fresh, <laughs> fresh. And, and it's, it's big enough of a market that, you know, um, and especially in somewhere like Tokyo or New York or anywhere, you know, other places in the world, or if I'm pitching with someone in Vancouver, you know, I, I think I probably should maybe be a little bit more confident in myself and my, my portfolio by now. But um, I think maybe I also, you know, have a little, a little bit of imposter syndrome I do attain, I think maybe helps me stay on my toes. And uh, I think it makes sure that I, I kind of uh, put in the work on every time. And, and uh, sure. Yeah. And, and, and try. I'm also very competitive too. That's, that's a, which I think is maybe helpful to have as a director because kind of have to be in these pitch situations. <laughs> you, yeah. have to, you have to have some sort of drive to, you know, uh, come up with ideas and have the enthusiasm and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's, yeah, it's a very, the whole, we, we could do a whole episode on the commercial director pitch. It's, it's a really fascinating craft and one that even me amongst other directors who are top and top in our city and our country, 
we'll have conversations about them of, of mm. the mentality about it, the psychology of it. You know, it's like almost like a stand-up gig. And there's literally been times where people um, forget what it's called in stand-up, where you kind of like, you know, you're just it, when things are spiraling and going really bad. Oh, okay, um, right. You're bombing or something. Bombing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it happens. Uh, or you go through slumps and you, you know, it's just a really fascinating kind of thing that's that's still part of commercial filmmaking. Right. I mean, you sure you've got your past work, but you can't just fall back on that saying, you know, I did this great job before, so you know, I'm automatically gonna do the same or equal in the future the ability to kind of stay hungry and keep improving i suppose right like not not necessarily being satisfied with something you did in the past right yeah that's that's exactly what it is yeah and i think look i think i think you could get away with it but i mean if you're striving to be the best then i think it's it's not a bad thing to be on your toes and to have that mentality all the time Right, right. Um, so you mentioned kind of growing up being more attracted to, um, you know, documentary work and the kind of um, art of that. Do you, do you have some like particular, was it more like short docs or do you, were you interested in like um, feature length or certain directors or what, what kind of was, was there... Um, narrative work that also kind of interested you growing up what what were kind of some of your uh some of your favorites or some things that you kind of think uh influenced you growing up yeah um so mostly i'd say between docs and narrative uh mostly features only only because we didn't have the access to shorts the way we do now um right. like now i mostly watch shorts that's because of things, platforms like Vimeo and YouTube and that have, you know, and all of us creators, that's what most of us create nowadays. Um, but, uh, you know, with doc work, I mean, goodness, I mean, aside from the great legends like Werner Herzog and whatnot, Canada actually was one of the sort of um, uh, pioneers of doc, doc cin cinema, um, cinema verite is a style of, of film documentary filmmaking which is sort of um uh, also known as fly on the wall technique where it's you're just you know really fo following a character a subject or a story as if you're not even part of the story and um that's something that was really pioneered uh mostly here in canada uh so there's a lot of great national film board um uh projects and films of of that nature um narrative films too i mean i always obviously I had a love and passion for narrative films. I mean, I remember one of the earlier ones that I still have is like one of my top 10 is Lost in Translation, which I know mm. all my Tokyo friends kind of gag at. But, um, but uh, for me, that was, I remember I was in university and I think what I didn't realize at the time was that, you know, a lot of the style of filming did have a doc element to it. I mean, there were right. parts where Scarlett Johansson's just walking around with a single camera operator without any permits or anything. And they were just capturing really authentic sort of impulsive human moments. And that's the part that I got drawn into is I came to this understanding or realization that I could, you know, I, I felt something, I could capture something. And, you know, I remember 
um, when I early, when I was young, when I would put together edits and even in these school projects and, you know, people would react, they would laugh, they would, you know, feel something, they would be, feel some sort of sense of wonder um, with a lot of the, maybe the travel stuff that I would have done in younger years. And uh, that, you know, I think it was just, again, something happened in my early twenties where everything kind of combined and my love and attention for doc and narrative films all came together um, around that time with, with those kind of influences that I just mentioned. Um, do you find it kind of tricky sometimes to, I guess, you know, you mentioned you're doing uh, more commercial work these days. Um, do you find it difficult to have a voice sometimes or be able to like express yourself artistically when, when of course, like you have to pay the bills, you have to, you know, um, it's not necessarily your vision all the time that's coming across, but do you often find it a challenge to be able to express yourself artistically in commercial work? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, to be completely honest, I'm very lucky that nowadays it, the, the gap has sort of really um, been reduced. So of course, when I started, you know, the gap was huge. I mean, luckily when I was younger, I didn't even recognize it that when I would do, you know, a toy commercial or like, I, I think at one point I did like feminine products and with the blue liquid and all this kind of stuff. And at the time I was so, I was just beginning to get into it that, you know, starting to work with a bit more people and lights and everything, things that were unfamiliar to me coming from more dock work um, was a bit of a novelty. And, you know, I thought that was kind of cool and fun. Now, nowadays that would be really, you know, a little bit trickier for me to do internally um, at this point in my career. And so I'm lucky now that um, I get asked to do projects that are often based either on my past commercial work or luckily on my dock work. And so, you know, there's instantly a little bit of like a value system. So uh, there's a, there's a Canadian, you know, legacy brand called Tim Hortons, uh, which is basically a coffee and donut shop. And I remember when they approached me last year to do a holiday video, um, which was, you know, themed on diversity. And one of the first questions I had to ask on the call, on the brief call was, um, you know, and I was a bit nervous because I said, I know you guys don't normally do this, my style of work. So I just want to be clear. Are you guys looking for me to, you know, do traditional commercially Tim Hortons style of work, or do you want me to do what I do? And they said, we, mm-hmm. we want you to be you. And so, you know, that was really cool that, um, you know, despite this corporate brand having a very much of a reputation and a look, which is a traditional commercial look, uh, they actually actively said, no, no, we don't want what we normally do. We want you to be you. And I've been lucky in, in, in having people ask me to do that more so. And, and so therefore, like the process of the work of casting, of the cinematography, of the set design, you know, I get to do it as if it's sort of my own little personal project. And then with there being these sort of little limitations, I mean, Tim Warren's was great because I actually even put uh, Timbits are these little donuts that we have here in Canada from that 
from this restaurant. And I actually had a cute shot of the kids eating them. And the client said, you know what, we want this to be about the story. We're going to take out all our products and, and want to want, don't, you know, it, it was very commendable of them. And, you know, that's the kind of realm I'm, I've, I'm now, you know, I've been directing now since I think my first commercial directing piece was 2017, 18, 19, somewhere in there. So, um, I've been lucky and I'm at a point now where people seek me for my work. And I think that happened because I actively made sure that I wanted to do what I do, you know, or as much as I could in the commercial land, I would try to infuse my values or, or who I am or my techniques. And obviously my personal work, I just, I, you know, unapologetically wanted to do what I did. And that, I think the combination of that is what led me here. And that's, again, um, I'm not sure if you're, necessarily looking for advice but uh if you were to i think that would be something that i'd love to pass on is is sort of you know just always making sure to do what you would consider as you or what you feel or what you want to express um even if it's a commercial piece right yeah i think like you say as well um it seems more so these days that um you mentioned you're seeing that more like in commercial work, you're seeing like more of an artistic side to it or like the audience kind of wants something more authentic or something more real. Um, People have kind of gotten a little bit sick of, um, you know, I guess more so what I think of like commercials from let's say like the eighties and nineties where it was, you know, all just like a big gimmick and, people don't really want to be tricked so much anymore. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and, 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 you know, it's funny though. Um, part of, I think what gets me to these pieces that I like is actually sometimes having to guide the people we're working with or our clients of exactly what you said, because, unsurprisingly you know i'd say over 50 percent of the clients i work with still feel like there's the right the the way you should be doing things not the way you want to be doing them and the way you should be doing them is dictated by you know anxiety fear corporate expectations da, 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 da. Um, and it's often you know our job as the director to guide exactly what you said and i use the word guide as opposed to enforce because different directors have different styles and you know it's been very very important for me uh to make sure to sort of have a very cooperative and a very you know i i feel i i've learned along the years that kindness um will get you further even if it takes a little bit longer sometimes and uh it's something that i find very important and i might as well you know one of my biggest values right now and I'm sure as I get older, you know, it'll, it'll continue to evolve. But when I was young, like doing the best commercial was like key priority. You want to, you want to be famous. You want to have an ego, blah, 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 and all this stuff. But it it has come to my realization that, um, you know, and I, and I always valued the human experience and the life experience of doing work. But, uh, you know, the commercial I did three years ago, is probably going to soon become forgotten or irrelevant or, or not as important. But I'll tell you, you know, the experiences that I had with Doc or working on these Sapporo projects in Tokyo, um, probably when I'm on my deathbed, I'll still remember 
the feeling and the camaraderie that I had with the people. And mm. I'm realizing how important that is, as opposed to had I yelled and, you know, dictated my power amongst the client and the crew and everyone to get what I wanted. And I might've gotten what I wanted. It might've been even mm. better. Mm. Um, but I don't know what I, I feel like when I'm on my deathbed, I don't really think I'm going to give a shit that right. I did this amazing commercial <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, for a beer company. Um, sure. And so that's sort of really put things into perspective and I'm, yeah, it's just, uh, and I think, and I think any creative person who works with other people, it's something that uh, again, I'd love to sort of pass that question and thought on to others is, you know, what are you doing this for? And, you know, just sort of a balance and check of your ego versus, I don't know, human relationships, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. You mentioned, um, being lucky, you know, being able to maintain like a certain level of artistic freedom or have your own voice on certain projects. So I'm curious, whether there's been some times when you've had to pass up a project, maybe where you didn't agree with uh, what the producers wanted or, um, you know, just got to the point where you kind of felt like it was going to, let's say, like violate some, you know, something that was against what you wanted to do. Uh yeah, and so it was the question whether I had to ever back out of a project. Yeah, or... back out or like pass on something that maybe you didn't agree with. Um, you you just couldn't, you know, reconcile. Yeah, so so luckily I've never had to back out of anything once I've been in it. But I have been in, I you know I've had to. There's been a couple projects where I've had to um, be really mindful of of taking. So early on, I remember. You know, I got offered a, a canned tuna company and and I did the research and, you know, I did see that they were one of, out of the 15 canned tuna companies in Canada, I think they were like like 15th or 14th on the list of how, yeah. of, of, uh, in order of best of, of worst of environmental practices. And um, even though the storyline and the budget and all this was cool, I, I remember passing it down or passing, you know, passing on it because, um, I do have somewhat of a, a, you know, a passion and a care for the oceans and, and it's part of also the community I do a lot of work in. So it wasn't something I felt comfortable being part of and, and making money off of. Uh, so, so there's a lot of situations like that where I might, uh, you know, I, I got offered by like a pipeline company in the east coast of canada and i'm pretty sure it was a very propagandic material of like look how great we are uh you know <laughs> stuff that i just didn't know enough about or i didn't feel comfortable necessarily supporting um but lately what's been happening a lot with projects that midway through uh are situations related to things like uh race and ethnicity and diversity especially with casting and you know that's been really interesting i mean you know, some of the companies, corporations here um, might use the language like, you know, a checklist of, of how many people or we, we can only have X amount of certain ethnicities. And, and, and so it became a very complex, 
conversation that was going to make creative decisions or affect creative decisions because um, it, it was going to dictate who we chose to cast for some of our, our works. And so instead of me just saying, I can't handle this and leaving, um, I set up, you know, I, I kind of uh, set up meetings and I, I try to be very diplomatic about it. Uh, and luckily everyone's super receptive and we just talk it, talk it through really. And, uh, luckily, um, in most cases it goes the, the way that, you know, I don't want to say the right way, but the, a way that seems more ethical, I'll say, yeah. uh, which I guess is, is the right way for me. But, um, but sometimes we compromise, but in a way that I feel also comfortable with, and it becomes a mutual agreed upon thing. Uh, you know, there were situations where, um, yeah, others, I had a situation where because of the decision of the ad agency, I even had some of my crew feeling uncomfortable. It was, it was the way refugees were going to be represented in a project. And, uh, I even had my crew kind of not threatening, but saying, expressing concern that they didn't feel comfortable putting their name on a project. So same idea. I just had to constantly hit because it took me about three or four tries to say listen guys you really need to back down from this idea it's not gonna it's it's inappropriate and it's gonna backfire on you guys big time mm. and they just didn't they just didn't see it for a little while and they didn't mean harm i think they actually bent well but you know i i think talking through it is my technique and solution and i think that's another important lesson to learn is you know there's so many routes to get what you want but you gotta find find one that's effective and maybe one that's sort of um just human i guess right yeah sense. yeah 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 it yeah. seems you know one of the themes one of the themes you've been talking about is you know connection between people and you know able you're able to communicate effectively and express yourself like you said without without losing it or without um maybe going off and getting angry or saying, you know, it has to be my way or, you know, having, having a dialogue where everyone's happy, I guess, with the end product. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. And I, cause at the end of the day, yes, we work in a professional setting. We work in a company structure and, you know, gosh, when I think of the stereotype of, you know, Japanese company dynamics and the, and you think mm -hmm. about the way certain people have to speak to each other and the way you, are meant to speak to each other. I mean, in lesser degrees, that anxiety exists in our industry, but it's a little bit silly. And I think what I've discovered is, you know, the way I'm talking to you right now, that's why I keep using the word human. I think people have forgotten that at the end of the day, yes, it's corporate structures. Yes, it's money. Yes, it's deadlines. Yes, it's all this. But we're all human beings. The people I'm talking to often, you know, now it's a bit more exposed because we're on Zoom having meetings. They have children to feed. They have children running around, you know, they have to go to sleep at night, just like all of us. And I think, yeah, I think trying to any production, any project, any, you know, it doesn't have to be in film, uh, will have its challenges, you know, rarely do things get accomplished smoothly. And I think it's just sort of remembering that you're a group of people, humans trying to get something accomplished together and doing it you know, without the anxieties and the insecurities and this arbitrary structure that's been created in our, in a lot of work industries, 
if you strip that all away, we're just a group of people and humans trying to get something done. And I think, um, yeah, that, that's definitely something that I've come to learn. And that's given me a lot of confidence in how to deal with challenges and conflicts and uh, how to grow and learn and improve and whatnot. And I think it's been a huge success of, of yeah, the, the type of work I do too. So, Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned You mentioned about, you know, we're based in Japan here and you've done work in Japan. You've got family in Japan. Um, can you talk about some of your some of your ties to Japan and s- some of the work that you've done in Japan? And, you know, you mentioned that the power structures are a little more, um, I guess, maintained over here than probably they would be in Canada. Do you have some experience with, uh, you know, having to be really polite to certain people or having, you know, people working for you, you, maybe you kind of having to tell them, well, relax a little bit, you know, you don't have to address me so formally. Um, what's kind of your experience being like working in Japan? Um, so luckily, well, it's twofold, you know, when we meet, uh, so say we're, Often, if I'm going on a, a location scout, we'll often meet, you know, the representatives of uh, a bar, a nightclub, a hotel, or wherever we're filming. And uh, it, it's funny, I, I because I don't quite know the formalities and the keigo kind of language, you know, <laughs> I think it's a and, and the fact that they often do express that I'm from Canada, it helps to sort of take that away. And I just kind of talk very casually, um, even in Japanese. Uh, my crew and the crew that I've met and have worked with too, luckily, I think, um, my producer in Japan, Christian Storms has maybe described film crews as sort of the, not, not the outcast of society by any means, but like they're, they're not quite the, 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 the normal traditional cookie cutter, um, you know, Japanese salary man types. And so by nature, I think, uh, they're a little bit more casual and at ease. And then I think even more so with me they realize quickly that I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, be a more typical Jap- a, a director type of thing. And so, yeah, the, the barriers are broken very easily. And luckily I've never had to really tell anyone, you know, to ease up or anything like that. And, and, uh, nor have I had to feel, um, sort of like I had to behave a certain way. And, uh, yeah, because of that, I've had two filming experiences in Japan now recently. So I worked on these Sapporo projects. And then the other one that you might not know of, James, is if you Google me on IMDb, I actually worked um, as a translator, camera operator, and uh, sort of a production coordinator uh, on a documentary called The Cove, which which was Oh, yeah, yeah. I did, I did notice that. Yeah, yeah. And, and Taiji and and uh, that was a very different and unique experience. And again, we can go off for hours talking about that one too. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I had a, a it was a very good learning experience for me to, to do that. Um, but all the times in Japan, I mean, the, you know, it's it's just been. I have to say, I mean, it might be cliche to say coming as an outsider and going into Japan and saying, "Wow, it's been so wonderful," and the people are so kind and so cooperative. And you know, um, I can say what's so fascinating about the crew in Japan is they are so bloody hardworking and they don't <laughs> complain. <laughs> and you know, they'll be willing to do things that you know um, 
crew over here, we're a bit more unionized or we're a bit more standardized. And I think with, for good reasons, um, maybe there's the odd time where it comes off as a little bit of entitlement, but over here in North America, we're recognizing that, you know, humans need to sleep a certain amount of time and we need family life and all this stuff. And then, you know, gosh, in Japan, like I had crew members that were like sleeping two, three hours because of certain settings and, and no complaints. And in fact, I think one, one of our, my crew said that she said something like, no, this is my pleasure. I was looking forward to it. And I loved, I loved every moment of what, you know, she was finishing an art piece. Um, and, and I believed her. I mean, she's either really good at, you know, <laughs> at uh, lying or, or uh, Misa Imai was her name, a wonderful, wonderful art, art director on this project that we just did. And, uh, and she was actually up with Doc late at night, uh, oh, nice, who, yeah. who you talked talk to previously in another episode. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's sort of the, the summary of my experience in Japan and uh, one that I'd love to continue to do over the years. Um, if I get the opportunity to do so. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like how you search out new projects or, um, especially, you know, coming to Japan, you mentioned like you had a, you have a producer that you work with. Um, are you kind of actively looking to, you know, do projects in other places or is it just, if something comes up, you jump at it or. Yeah, the way it works commercially is very much, you know, when projects come up, you jump at it. And I'm right now represented as, as a director in Canada. Um, and my hope and goal over the next few years is to expand that through the US and Europe. And even Japan has a very different structure when it comes to directors and commercial directors and whatnot. But uh, there are ways to get work in Japan, as I have been able to luckily so that's that's my hope there but on a personal level um i've been wanting to do a project in japan uh over the next few years so that's one that i'm sort of trying to write and and kind of piece together right now and my my ultimate dream and hope it would be to, to have a piece that's sort of set in japan and to for me to kind of explore that part of my own self too and you know uh, I'll, I'll try to say this quickly, but long story short is, um, you know, growing up in Canada, I had a really interesting relationship with Japanese culture. You know, I, I have to admit, I almost kind of looked down on it as, as somebody who's second generation. I thought Western culture was better and cooler mm-hmm. and smarter and, you know, all these sort of things. And I, and I, re- and partially it was my parents, um, you know, and, Partially, it was the community I grew up in, which I mentioned was where I was kind of the one of the few or only non-white kids, and I wanted to be what the rest of the community was. And uh, you know, I bleached my hair, like I tried to to kind of take on an identity. And it really wasn't until this first Sapporo project I did in 2018, and I got to start to meet this community, and then this last one with like meeting folks like Dan Rosen from Tokyo Dex and the artists and everyone, it really opened my eyes to kind of, you know, it, it felt like I was sort of starting to finally um, get to know my own culture, get to know a part of myself that I'd kind of tucked away. And um, for that reason, I think just, I'd love to at some point in the near future do a non-commercial project in Japan is, is sort of my ultimate hope. 
Right. Um, yeah, that was one of the things I kind of wanted to ask you about. Like, do you have some kind of, um, you know, if you had a budget of whatever you wanted or you had, um, you know, a crew, what are, what are kind of, you mentioned the one in Japan. Do you, do you have some uh, other ideas that, uh, if, if you could kind of just do whatever you want, what are, what are some of maybe your more artistic things or what are some things that you've got floating around in your head? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the project in Japan would be, you know, uh, would be sort of on the top of my list. And then I think that part would explore a lot more of the storytelling and the human side of things. And it would be more on the narrative side of things that I would be curious to explore, which is sort of the shift that I'm taking right now is from more of the doc world into actually, um, you know, writing and formulating and telling the story. Uh, inevitably there'll probably be some natural doc elements or feelings in there, but uh, that's sort of on the top of my list. And then the other right now I'd say is definitely something going back to the sense of adventure and exploration, um, particularly in the underwater world. I mean, that's, mm. I think the, the, you know, you'll see bits and pieces of underwater and elements of water being underwater in the work I do. Um, but again, the first, you know, five, six years of my career, very much focused on, uh, on being underwater. And so, it's just something that I think, again, I've, I've, maybe it was the pandemic and not having access to it and whatnot, but uh, it's something that I'm, I'm definitely yearning for. So if I had all the money in the world, oh boy, it would uh, <laughs> <laughs> be quite a lot of exploration and, and trying to tell a story that once again captures a sense of wonder, I think, is something mm. that would be uh, on my mind for sure. Yeah. I guess you know, like as a filmmaker and you mentioned you want to get more into writing and storytelling. Do you feel that sometimes, um, it can be tricky because you just get, you just get rolling along with these commercial gigs and you kind of put your own ideas a little bit on the side. And then, um, it, it's hard to kind of get your own production going on, or do you feel like, okay, well, I'll be able to sort of carve out this time once I get done doing this amount or once I get done doing this, like, do you, do you feel this drive where like you want to get some of your personal projects accomplished? Yeah. You sound like the voice on my shoulder <laughs> asking that question <laughs> that haunts me daily. That question. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's uh, surprisingly, you know, I'm in a good place to be able to do that now. So I, I've been lucky. I, I, again, I'd say if you, from 2010 to 2020, um, I had a really good divide of making sure by fluke or by timing or by own, my own volition to have some sort of personal project in the works. Uh, and that's that was really important for me. I know sometimes my agent, it was frustrating because there'd be a job that comes in, but I'd already booked myself a month away to work or even a week or two or a week or a few days away to, to do something. Um, so that's been really helpful. Like it's, it's definitely kept me churning. And then in 2019, I shot for two months in Africa. And then last year I spent most of it working on like a 52 minute film that 
Um, we're hoping to release either later this year or early next year. And after I finished that film last year, I just, I needed to, you know, I actually wiped my slate clean of all personal projects and shorts at that time. And um, I wanted to make sure the next thing I did was kind of big. And I, I, I frankly wanted to take a bit of a break. So I did focus on mm-hmm. commercial work. And now I'm in this funny pocket where I'm kind of struggling with exactly what you mentioned is, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting, I'm getting great access to commercial work and I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Um, definitely struggling to find the time to sit and, and write or to conceive of projects or carve out that time, but it'll happen. I think, you know, uh, knowing myself, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm somewhat certain that I'll carve out the time. I think it's just always been a part of me and who I am. And uh, I've seen a lot of people in similar positions who, who do only who get kind of drowned out by the commercial work and uh it could happen it could happen but i i will probably push forth to make sure it doesn't at a certain point uh is is, is what i hope right 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 <laughs> but, right but, but but i'll wake up tomorrow morning with sweats uh, or in, in, <laughs> with with your voice in my ear asking me that question probably <laughs> i guess um like it's probably one of the big challenges, certain directors, filmmakers, creators, they have all these ideas, but in terms of finding funding or finding collaborators, that can be one of the hurdles too. Do you, do you kind of feel confident when you kind of, you mentioned, you know, the underwater project or the project in Japan, do you, do you kind of feel like, you know, the steps that you'd have to take to get something like this accomplished or does it kind of feel like well i'd have to get pretty lucky to make one of these things happen or um how do you kind of gosh yeah well here's the thing so in the past uh i didn't have that anxiety and i'm realizing that that's part of what grew my confidence and, and grew my experiences because I could just shoot, pick up a camera, shoot and edit it. So while the quality may differ or suffer or be different, at the end of the day, I knew that if I had a story I wanted to tell, all I had to do was pick up a camera, which I tend, you know, which I, as a gearhead, I would have some sort of a camera. Um, and, you know, with minimal equipment, I could tell the story that I want and, and edit it myself if I had to. And, and do all the post-production myself if I had to and get it done. Um, I'd say, you know, I have a project called Lure of the North that is on my site and it received like a Vimeo sat pick. And that was one of my first projects where, you know, it took me three years to edit it because I got busy. And I actually even booked a retreat in a, in a, a motel, like an hour, two hours away from Toronto in hopes that I would like disconnect myself to edit it. Right. And of course a commercial job pitch came in and I worked on the pitch instead. So I remember I finally, you know, uh, surrendered and I, I embarrassingly to, you know, I was embarrassed at the time or I was very shy at the time to ask people for help. And there was an editing company that I've been working with a lot lately called outsider editorial. And I just said, look, even if it's a junior editor and assistant editor, is there anyone that could just take this? Cause it's been three years and I've, I'm not going to get it done. And they all were very kind to jump on it as a favor. Um, and, and it did, you know, it turned out amazingly. Uh, and it's exactly the feeling I wanted to capture and even, you know, 
even better, it, it receives some sort of recognition and then that helps share it to more people uh, around the world as well. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was, that was pretty, pretty cool, but, uh, you know, it, it was hard for me to ask for that help. Uh, mm-hmm. and now I, I think I have, I'm lucky that I have access to help if, if I need to in certain ways, like there's a lot of people on the post-production side that are kindly offering to, to, to or would, would maybe accept or, or would offer to help, um, on the production end, it is tough, but what I've always done is I found a way to do it myself and I'm, I should probably explore things like film grants and sponsorships and whatnot. Um, but we'll see, we'll see how I take on, you know, it depends how I write it and what resources I need. Maybe it's, it might be something where I save, save up and try to fund it myself. Um, but I think that's the other thing that's important with filmmaking. And when I look at young people's portfolios, the moment I go, how the heck did you do that? That's the magic of a filmmaker, you know, mm-hmm. is they, maybe they had their parents' money. Maybe they saved their own money. Maybe they got a grant, but however you do, maybe they stole, maybe they, you know, <laughs> however, however they did it. Um, I think that's the magic of, of, to be honest, a, a part of the magic and intrigue of filmmaking is, is saying it, it, once you have a portfolio going, like in theory, I probably could apply for grants at this point and, and receive a bunch, at, mm. you know, fairly, fairly easily. Um, I've been told it's just, it's an unfamiliar process with me. And so something that I have to, to look into and learn. But a colleague of mine just received a $60,000 grant for a short film that he wrote last year during the pandemic. And it's a Canadian Council of Arts, I believe. So it's like one of the, the government-funded grants that exist here in Canada. I, I don't know how Japan is with grants. I, I don't. I think I heard they, they're not so great with them. Um, but uh, but, um, but yeah, that, that's sort of the trick is to figure it out however which way you think you, you need to. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I guess the goal, well, not necessarily, but one of the goals for filmmakers is, you know, getting people to watch their films, right? And getting them screened and, you know, maybe getting them in a film festival. Um, promotion, whether it's like, you know, these days, self-promotion, social media, whatnot. Um I'm kind of curious, like some of your thoughts on like when you, when you have some of these projects in mind or you're working on something that is maybe like what you'd consider, you know, a pet project, your artistic project, do you always kind of have an end goal of an audience in mind or is a lot of it to do with yourself as well, or it's a bit of both? Um, yeah, bit of both, and it's ever evolving. I'd say, like, I think when I started making short films, you know, I was happy for it to just be shown to my friends. I mean, even this underwater thing I mentioned. Um, yeah, so I think I started doing work for them in two thousand and four, before the advent of YouTube and you know Vimeo and all this stuff. And I remember we would just sort of upload. There was an upload video service, and you would have to have like dial-up mode and a and like a medium low mode medium and high high mode and anyway i i think the viewership was very low and just for my friends and the people in the community or the people that were just even there you know at each of these sort of um productions watching them i think was was cool enough 
Uh, obviously, you know, over time, just having it on like Vimeo, uh, which is a really important platform or a significant platform for us filmmakers. Um, that was cool. And, you know, often it'd be a thousand views or something or a couple hundred views, that couple thousand views or whatnot. And, and I don't know, that really satisfied me at the time, to be honest. I mean, I think I was just happy to have this piece, to have the experience to make it. I mean, I think that's the other part of it too, is, you know, yes, James, as much as you want to do make films for others to see. Um, I think I also made a lot of films because I wanted to just experience it. So whether it was like Lure of the North, which was, you know, eight days trekking through the winter, um, I really did enjoy, I just wanted to take on that experience of making it. And I want, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I'd say that like, imagine making Tenet, like that Christopher Nolan <laughs> did. I mean, even if only two people saw it, I mean, oh my gosh, as a filmmaker, that would have been an amazing experience just to make the film and to be part of that right. project. Um, so I think that's kind of, pretty important and then yeah over time i i submitted it to festivals smaller one you know to mid-level ones here and there um but but again that was sort of I'll, I'll be honest that was more for the marketing of the film uh to to get those emblems than it was to to you know i i knew like the web viewership was probably going to be more more in terms of the viewership but again if if 10 people saw it 10 people saw it it was often there were projects if i was proud of it's because I really enjoyed the experience of it. Um, so there's that. Nowadays, yeah, I'm trying to strive to get into bigger festivals and it's, some, again, a new world that I'm not familiar with. Um, so that would be my next goal is like at some point in my career, I'd love to be able to get into, you know, a somewhat bigger name festival at some point, but we'll sure. see. I mean, that's that's the, that's the step that I'd love to make uh, as a filmmaker. Sure, sure. Well, it seems, you know, at least... Um... The past couple of years, like you mentioned, your underwater idea, um, some of these, you know, outdoor or like, um, I'm thinking in particular, uh, I guess it did win an Academy Award, some of Jimmy Chin's um, documentaries, um, you know, Free Solo in particular, I think, you know, just mm -hmm. had so many people interested in, um, you know, documentaries and then like the outdoors and those type of ideas. Uh, so yeah. like you say, I think, I think there's people who are interested. There's an audience just, um, is it, is it important for you to kind of, like you mentioned, getting your videos online, um, to have people kind of commenting or, you know, if they're, if it's, if you're at a festival, you're able to see someone's reaction, um, or like if it's mm -hmm. on YouTube or whatever to read comments, um, how do you kind of react to people seeing your work and kind of the feedback in that respect, or are you just kind of, you know, happy, happy for yourself without, you know, hearing what anyone has to say about it? Yeah, it, it's a great question because I'm, as you're saying it, I'm realizing how much I've been distant from like the pure form of, cinema or, or showing a movie in a theater because one of the first experiences I had I'll never forget it was to a group of free divers during a world championships in Vancouver and again my job was to like film during the day edit at night and have like a daily update piece like a three four minute piece and I'd usually try to make them with like a little bit of emotion and wonder and whatever and um, you know it was just non-stop cranking it out 
And I showed, I remember showing a piece to this group of the world's best free divers in this sort of conference room almost. And when they all, I think they all like did a standing ovation. And I, I remember I like crouched by the projector in the back because I was so nervous. But that that feeling is what got me. I, I, I never, I'll never forget that feeling. It was almost, it was the biggest high. Um, I haven't felt that in a while because, you know, I think I, I screened one of my films in a theater years ago, but, you know, it, it was a bit of a different re- reaction. You know, it was a different crowd, different reaction. It wasn't, it wasn't that it did do well or anything necessarily, but uh, it wasn't the type of film that would garner a, a standing ovation necessarily. Um, and, uh, you know, but what I've been getting a lot of is, is, is not necessarily just comments. I mean, the comments are fantastic to see and it's a really, it's, it's something you don't necessarily get, um, you know, in a live screening is to get, you know, hundreds of people, um, expressing themselves. The, the, the part that really is meaningful though, are some of the emails that I get mm. and, um, because they get to sort of almost delve into a bit more of an intimate story. Uh, and so, you know, I remember I did a film called the canoe a few years ago and I had, uh, this gentleman email me saying that how important the film was, um, because his father was actually starting to go through dementia, but, um, his whole life since he was a child, uh, they had had a red canoe and he almost, they had named, I think every, almost every other decade, he had a new red canoe and he had a name for it that him and his father would go out paddling in. And, um, he asked if, you know, he said he was going to rent out a small community movie theater in around Kingston area where his father currently was in a home and he wanted to screen the movie for his father's birthday as sort of one last paddle with him. And, you know, that, that was extremely touching. And mm-hmm. I think, I think even if he was the only person that saw the film, that's, that was worth it. Um, and I think at least for me, that's sort of, you know, kind of what I do it for. I mean, of course it's nice to see the view count and it be seen by many, 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 but right. I'd rather it be seen by fewer there where it touched or had some sort of meaning than, than the masses and no meaning at all. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I guess, you know, for artists, regardless of whether it's filmmaking or any type of art, I think that's a big reason, you know, why a lot of people do create art is to communicate or to be able to um, influence other people's emotions and seems like you know you're you're on the right track in the future as well in terms of a couple pet projects that may come up Mm -hmm. um i i gotta thank you for this man the time i feel like we could go on um quite a bit longer but time time's just kind of flown by i have a couple i have a couple final questions that i ask everyone at the end of the show, if that's cool. Absolutely. Right on. Um, so, you know, as this is called the inspirations podcast, um, I've got two questions. So first one is what are three things or could be three people, three things or three people who've really inspired you in your work or in your life? Maybe they continue to inspire you or something that kind of led you um, to where you are today. (laughs) Um, okay. I've got two. Well, I'll start with the ones I know. Sure. Uh, I, I'd say, you know, you, you asked me earlier about filmmakers and stuff that it, 
that had an influence on me. But I should say um, there's a photojournalist named James Noctway who used to shoot for Time and Magnum. Uh, incredible, incredible influence on me. Um, there was a an Oscar nominator award-winning documentary called War Photographer that was done about him uh, about 10, 15, 15 years ago now. And um, basically, you know, this was happening during that time when I went backpacking around the world and I left the editing company and decided to become a documentary kind of director or filmmaker, or at least sort of taken that ethos into the craft I do, even if it's commercial work. And one of the mantras that um, he lived by, wasn't his quote, it was by another previous photojournalist, but he lived by this mantra of, um, if your photos aren't good enough, uh, it means you're not close enough. And he would be the guy that in a war situation, instead of using a telephoto lens and shooting scenes from afar, he would get right in there with a wide angle lens and sure. almost feel like you're part, part of the scenario. And that, that whole spirit of storytelling is something that I'm very much, um, you know, very much influenced by and very much something that, that means a lot to me. Um, I think the next one I think I have to give credit to is a filmmaker named Terrence Malick. Sure. Uh, he's, he's done films like tree of life and again, similar sort of ethos in, in that idea of being intimate and emotive and up close and capturing a feeling and conveying that through images is something that, you know, he's him and his cinematographer, Emmanuel Lebeski have done really well. Uh, it's something that has deeply influenced me. And I know Terrence Malick is divisive. Some people love him, some people hate him, but um, for me, it's, you know, there's parts of his work that have just been so, so important for me. Um, and the last one is what it may sound a bit cheesy or corny is, is hundred percent my wife, uh, Courtney. Yep. Um, she actually, uh, up until recently was the producer or an assistant or producer on every one of those projects that you've probably seen on my portfolio. Uh, so from a work level, you know, it was hugely influential and it's something I have to figure out. You asked earlier tonight, you know, if I were to do wanted to do a project, am I nervous about funding? And it kind of wasn't because sometimes it'd just be her and I, and mm. we could go off and figure it out and make it happen, right. you know? Um, and uh, she's now wanted to sort of do a transformation into a different career path, uh, which I'm like loving and it's been awesome, but uh, to see her bloom, but um, I got to, I got to figure out that that sort of that, that partner uh, that'll that'll come into minus thirty degrees for eight days uh, <laughs> through the winter cold with me. Um, uh, yeah, and and then in life too. I mean, my gosh, I've grown and learned so much as a human, and all the valleys I talked about tonight are are much thanks to her. Sure. Yeah. Perfect. Um... Yeah, I guess, as you say, like more so, more so than even your art and, you know, your filmmaking, someone that's going to be there regardless of all of it, um, you know, is what everyone's, everyone's potentially searching for. So, yeah, yeah. Um, last one for you, last one for you, man. So what, it, what does it mean then for you? Uh, someone, you know, someone views your work, they see one of your short films or even, you know, they see one of the commercials you've done and um, it inspires them, uh, maybe inspires them to action or inspires them to feel a certain way. 
Um, so what, what does it mean for you to be inspirational or an inspiration to other people? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously the obvious answer is that it means the world to me. Um, sure. I think, you know, it's a, it's a very expected and simple answer, but of course I think for any artist to do what they love or, or to express who they are and, um, and then for that to actually have a positive effect on someone else, another human being, another human soul. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that is, that is a very, very good feeling. Um, and it's one that, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's, it, it, it's weird to say, of course, that's what we strive for. Um, but, uh, I guess the best answer to that maybe summarize would be, um, I've been influenced, inspired. Uh, I felt happy, sad, you know, angry at other people's works and that feeling I value, you know, I've been even reading books on the biology of storytelling and the importance to human beings um, as an element of survival, even, and in not just, you know, especially in the last year, there did come a point where people had a bit of an existential crisis on what they do. And, and as a storyteller, is there any, is that a, is that a basic necessity and, or not? And, you know, as you explore that more, you do begin to realize that it, it can be or it, it is. And it's something, storytelling is something that has always existed and it's something that has influenced me so much. So if I can be a part of that to someone else, then of course that's, um, that's you know, the ultimate validation of, I think, of, of, of all the energy that we put into what we do. Perfect, yeah. Like, yeah. like you say, it's just kind of the the human condition storytelling and especially through you know certain mediums even beyond language just uh, the ability to make a connection and share emotions um yeah that's strong so i i gotta thank you once again for uh coming on the show um giving some great advice um sharing some stories um i gotta thank you you know like you said staying true to your voice and putting emotion and putting yourself in your work and doing it kind of, you know, for the right reasons and not just, you know, chasing commercial success or chasing money and uh, staying true, staying true to your craft. So thanks a lot. Go Iremoto. Um, where, where, so where can the, where can the people kind of support you and check out your work then? Uh, I guess the best place would be is to go to my website, which is, uh, at goyourmoto.com, G-O-H-I-R-O-M-O-T-O.com. And uh, yeah, that'd be, that's where all the, my favorite pieces are collected there. So uh, that's where you can go. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, James. I I really appreciate it. This is, uh, this is fun. And I don't often get to delve into my own mind, (laughs) to (laughs) pull through all these thoughts and articulate them. So uh, yeah, it's almost, there's almost a therapeutic value to it every time I, (laughs) I get asked questions like this. So thank you so much. That was Go Iromoto. And this is James Melling with ADSR Inspirations. Thanks for listening. 
you want to hear more insightful and inspirational chats from people based in Japan and all over the world, make sure to follow us at adsrcollective.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at adsrcollective. Then listen to the pod on Spotify, Apple, Google, and more. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Until next time, stay inspired.